0: Good morning. My name's Mike Riley, and uh, I want to give my testimony this morning, but before I jump into it, uh, like everybody else, talk about fear. You can hear the shaking in my voice. Um, fear and nervousness, it, it's an odd animal. Um, this whole weekend, I've been encouraged, excited, couldn't wait to do this. Wake up this morning, fear totally came in, and God makes it very clear to us that if we rely on Him, and keep our focus on Him, we're going to stay excited. We're going to stay motivated. But the second our eyes come off of Him and on ourself, it, you're, you're going to dive. And I have been doing that this morning. But uh, I do pray that y'all are encouraged by this. What I have to talk about is a little bit difficult, and y'all will hear as I get started. But uh, one of our core values here at Point is that we are characterized as being an authentic people who are willing to be transparent and genuine and nervous. And, uh, but anyway, about four and a half years ago, before coming to Crosspoint, I was leading a youth group at our church. I was playing the drums in the praise band. And uh, things were going really well, I thought. And uh, little did I know that the focus slowly started being more about me instead of God. And uh, my speech was still all about him. I knew how to talk the talk, but my heart was basically saying, Lord, I appreciate the opportunity, but I can take it from here. And uh, y'all have heard the elders here, they pray many times about guarding against ministry, becoming a job or a job. That's exactly what I did. I, I know firsthand how easily that can happen. Um, little did I know at that time that everything was fixing to change. I began to lose my joy and my enthusiasm for anything spiritual. Reading the Word, praying, um, it seemed like everything was just drying up. I just, I was losing it all. And uh, at the same time, conflict began to come into the church. And it was over family-driven faith and the direction that the church was going, and the church was literally in turmoil. Half the church wanted it, half the church didn't. And uh, I just, I remember at that time, I, I was an absolute mess. Uh, I was confused, I was out of touch, and I just couldn't make any decisions. I thought, what in the world is going on? And I happened to just be flipping stations one night on the radio, and Focus on the Family was on, and a preacher that had been preaching for many, many years Uh, Was talking about having the exact same symptoms, just the dryness. He couldn't get into the word, got to the point where he didn't even want to preach. And uh, it hit me at that point. They were talking about depression. And I thought, you know, I I can't be depressed. Guys don't get depressed, it just doesn't happen. And uh, sure enough, uh, it was right after that I was encouraged uh, to seek counseling with uh, Morris, Morris Bean. I'm getting dry. I didn't have peanut butter this morning, but I would think I did. But anyway, um, through counseling with Morris Bean, we found out that I, I was diagnosed with uh, with depression. And I remember asking all the why questions: why, you know, why me, Lord? I'm I'm doing Your work. I'm working in the church, and you know, trying to justify everything. And uh, I know now He's revealed to me that the why is not important. He asked for us to walk in obedience. And if we continue to ask the why questions, it's normal, but basically, it's just lack of faith instead of just walking in obedience. Anyway, I stepped down from my positions at that time, uh, and I did it publicly before the church, and that was, next to this, probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. Uh, Because basically, I was getting up and not just telling them that I was stepping down, but I was admitting failures. Uh, I felt ashamed. Um, it, it, was, it was a rough go. But anyway, uh, it was a short time after that that uh, we came to Crosspoint, and I remember from day one how rich the sermons were. Uh, even in my dryness, they caused me to really question what I believed to be true. And uh, the sweet thing was that the sermons were so rich that they were actually drawing me back into the Word, which was beautiful. Um, but at that time, I became a full on consumer of the Word. I mean, I was devouring the Word, I was eating up the sermons, but I was not pursuing Christ at all. I just got comfortable coming in Sunday after Sunday, getting fed, going home and uh i'm not sure if it was in my pain or what it was and uh don't take it personally but at that time i didn't want anything to do with the body i just wanted to be fed go home and be left alone and uh i do believe that uh, that comfort zone it's a uh, it's very dangerous to stay in that comfort zone the longer you're in it you can you can become absolutely paralyzed uh fear of talking to people fear of getting out but uh Anyway, the desire did, uh, after a while, started coming back, wanting to be known, and we kept, I kept hearing, you know, being known and knowing, and it started to appeal to me, and little did I know at that time how hard it was going to be. And th- this is the part that's really odd. All my life, I've been really outgoing, uh, could talk to anybody, and all of a sudden, it hit me that the depression had changed my personality. I I couldn't talk to anybody. I mean, I just absolutely could not start a conversation. And right now, I'm just talking really weird because I'm dry. But uh, anyway, the negative thoughts, they just continued to get more and more and more. Thank you. Thank you. Time out. Much better. Thank you. Anyway, uh, the negative thoughts, they just kept getting more and more. It was it was as if they were amplified on steroids, and it caused me to lose all self-esteem, confidence. And for the first time in my life, I literally could not start up a conversation. Uh, I felt loss of words, uh, literally scared to say anything because I felt that if I open my mouth, I'm going to say something stupid to embarrass myself. That's, that's how devastating depression can be. And I do realize now that I was only being deceived but anyway, uh, at that time, my idol was still ease and comfort, and the focus was still all about me, but now the focus was, Lord, fix me. I, I need to get past this. Just heal me, fix me, whatever you can do. You've heard people say, you know, God is not a heavenly bellhop. That's basically how I was treating him. Just fix me, anything, fix me. And it was about a year ago, and uh, so I went through about three and a half years here of all that. And about a year ago, God made it very, very clear to me that although he did want to heal me, he first wanted my heart fixed on him, which had not been for some time. And since that time, he has been revealing himself to me more and more every day, showing me his faithfulness and the importance of walking in obedience, which is not easy, but it is commanded Back in October, when we started the conflict series, which was an excellent series, by the way, uh, I was listening to sermons. I drive a truck for a living. I listen to a lot of sermons when I'm on the road. And uh, I remember this one particular sermon right before it, a testimony was given. And I felt God pressing me at that time that you're going to get back up and you're going to share what I've been doing. And I remember how hard that was when I stepped down from the other church and I thought, basically argued with God. I said, that's not going to happen. There's no way. And besides, our church doesn't do testimonies. And I thought, I'm clear. I'm good. (laughs) I kid you not. My wife can testify. The very next Sunday was the first testimony given. And I I just sat in my seat like, God, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. And yes, this is four months later. And that's just a sign of our weakness, how he has been pressing since October for me to do this. And I've I've put it, don't want to, don't want to. If God wants you to do something, he will press and he will press. He hasn't, believe me, I would be very okay with not getting up here and doing this, but God kept saying, you're going to, you're going to, and I, here I am. Anyway, I want to close with this because I'm kind of starting to ramble a little bit, but let me close with this that... God is not interested in lip service at all. We can talk the talk all day long. He's not interested in begrudging submission. He's looking for a heart that is truly seeking after him. And if you leave today with anything, don't walk away thinking that you can do this, that you own your own and I'll, I'll try harder because it just simply will not last. It's only by God's grace and power of his spirit that makes this possible. So pray for absolute boldness that only comes from him and always be an encouragement to others. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be deceived by sin's deceitfulness. Thank you. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 6.
1: Thank you, Mike, for sharing this morning. I know that uh, that was... Um, God was relentless in coming after you to do that. And I'm thankful that you followed through on it. Blessed me to hear it. It's encouragement to hear how God uses little things that sometimes you wonder what God's doing because it's not always obvious. And then you hear some, some testimony of what God has done and you're encouraged. It's, um, I don't want to be enslaved to hearing feedback because that's, that would be walking by sight. But when we do hear feedback of what God is doing, let's celebrate it. That's, man, that's why his testimony was right in the middle of our worship set of songs, because that's worship. Testifying to what God has done in your life. That's worship, and I'm thankful for it. The beginning of January, we started a series of sermons in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. What led us on this journey was sort of reading our Bibles with a new set of eyes, a set of eyes that had been conditioned by our journey in Hebrews. (laughs) I'm imagining if you haven't been through this journey together, it's already sounding like, man, what in the world are you talking about? We as a church, not exclusively, but in large part, are moving through the book of Hebrews right now, (laughs) although it's been some time. And before the holidays, before Advent... We were in Hebrews chapter 3 where the main teaching it was a series of sermons or a series of sermons from verses uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 that were titled Consider Jesus series. And a product of that series of sermons was this realization that the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church with the realization that we are the house of God. That as the tabernacle was the earliest picture of the house of God that became the temple and now we are the replacement for the temple. We are the dwelling place for God. So that realization sort of gave us a new set of eyes as we go back and read maybe some ancient passages that we might not look at very often. We go back and read them, and they go, oh, now that makes a whole lot of sense. That's what took place in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. The book of 2 Chronicles begins sort of introducing Solomon. I'm going to read a few excerpts and then we're going to really focus on chapter six, and I'm going to read chapter six in its entirety. And as we go, I'm going to share just a few things, a few little nuggets that we gained from our journey through this chapter. And then what we're going to do together is I'm going to have four little brief, what I would call devotional points that are important from our journey. And then we as a church are going to offer up a prayer that's been informed and fueled really by Solomon's prayer here. And then we're going to continue in Psalm. It's going to be a little different morning, less preaching, a little more prayer and praise. So, the less preaching. I know if you have little ones with you, you might be thinking, man, I'm kind of glad about that because I'm kind of wrestling. That's okay. That's part of the journey. Wrestle with the little ones. It won't bother me. If it gets too loud, it might bother those around you. So, just be mindful of that. But for the most part, we can handle that. Now, this book of 2 Chronicles begins introducing Solomon. It says, Solomon and all the assembly went with him, went to the high place that was at Gibeon. This is in verse 3 of chapter 1. For the tent of meeting, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness was there. And in verse 6, Solomon went up there to the bronze altar. This is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a 1,000 burnt offerings on it. In some ways, what Solomon is doing there, he's paying homage to what's taken place before him. God placed on the heart of his father, David, to build a temple, a physical structure for the altar and for God's dwelling place. God didn't let David follow through on that, but he let Solomon follow through on that. And Solomon, in this act of sacrificing in the tabernacle, is paying homage to everything that's happened behind him. He's not thumbing his nose at what's behind him. He's moving on to a new phase in God's story, but he's in some ways paying homage to it. Verse seven, in the night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Verse 10, he says, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours which is so great? God tells Solomon, you can ask for anything, Solomon. Solomon asks wisely for wisdom and God gives it to him in spades. Then he gives him also in addition to wisdom, he gives him wealth, and then Solomon begins the work of building the temple. In chapter two, it gives some of the details of who he consults. A guy named Hiram, the king of Tyre, he asks him for some help for a man skilled in work, to work in gold and bronze and silver and iron and in purple and crimson and blue fabrics trained also engraving, in, in, in engraving. That's where we met a guy named Abi, the first winner of Project One Runway. This guy was amazing skilled at all these tasks, he came from Tyre and helped them build this temple. And then Solomon recruits the help in verse 17 of chapter two. You see some of the hard labor or the laborers that come into this work. And then in chapter three, he begins to build the work. He begins the work and he furnishes in chapter four. In chapter five, sort of another high mark is he moves the Ark of the Covenant into the temple with great fanfare. In verse 12, it says, The Levitical singers, Asaph, and some other guys, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Then in chapter 7, sort of the high-water mark of the entire story of building the temple, Solomon, excuse me, in chapter 6, Solomon blesses the people, and then he dedicates the temple. Let's read some of these passages, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, and then I'll jump down to verse 12. Verse 12. Then Solomon said, "The Lord has said He would dwell in thick darkness i e Sinai, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, and then moved down to verse twelve and then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, the exact dimensions of the altar. That'll be important later. And he had it set in the court and he stood on it. And then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and are on earth. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you followed through and fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not like a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant, David. And here begins our petition, seven of them that Solomon makes before the Lord. The first one, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This was the first sermon in the series of sermons where we realized that first of all, God answered his prayer 13 years later. In chapter seven, he answered his prayer with the promise, not only will you get my eyes, you're gonna get my ears and you're gonna get my heart. And then we considered, as a church that some thousand years later when Christ went to the cross and was crucified and risen and ascended, that that's the point in the story, really in the gospels, where we begin to see this saturation of the story with God referencing, uh, referencing to God as Father. We take it for granted, but our Old Testaments are nearly void of that reference. And we consider it in the New Testament, it is saturated with Father, 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 Father. That's because in Christ, not only is he a listening ear, but he is an attentive, approachable, available Father treating us as his children. We consider together what an amazing answer to prayer. He's answered in spades through the work of Christ he's available to us attentive to us and that he's approachable no big iron doors no big appointment books no armed guards he says come in here son come in here daughter i'm here for you what an amazing thing we have in that answer prayer Then in verse 22 is the second petition. If a man sins against his neighbor, (coughs) excuse me, I'll try and do that, try not to do that in the microphone again. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swear his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. This week in this second petition, what we realized is what he's asking for here is that God would convict the guilty and reward the righteous. What we asked for as a church then, and what we're going to ask for again today, is that he would continue to do that in our gatherings. The truth exposed would encourage the righteous who've been moving well, that they would be encouraged. You're doing a good job loving your wife, buddy. You're doing a good job loving that hard to love guy, wife. You're doing a good job, kids, submitting to frail, feeble, even clay-footed parents. Keep it up. But those who need to be convicted, who need to walk in some guilt, that the word exposed would do that. That we not shirk from that. That we not be about ear tickling, but be about the work of exposing the truth so that those who are guilty would experience conviction and that those who are moving in a way that's righteous would experience reward. What we've found before and since then, that there are occasions in a single sermon where you may experience both. There may be occasions in a single sermon where one person is encouraged and the person right next to him experiences severe conviction, but that we would not be hypoallergenic. The truth exposed would do its work. It would set it loose, and it would change us, grow us, refine us, that our, balance, our sermons and our teachings would have weekly balance, balance. The third thing came from verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. In this third request, we stopped down that Sunday and said, you know what, let's just not take this for granted. Let's really read this and realize what's being asked here. He is asking a holy, just, righteous God to forgive the person who has thumbed their nose at him. And not only to forgive them, but to restore whatever they lost through their sin. And we just considered for a moment, wait a second, can a wise man ask that of a holy, righteous, judge God, or just God? And we realized, yes, a a wise man can because that's the kind of God that we have. We considered as a people, what a treasure we have in a kind of God that will forgive the one who has been sinfully stupid. If he turns, if he prays and pleads, and if he acknowledges God's name in that. We have the kind of God that not only will he forgive them, but he will then restore what they've lost in their sin. What a shocking God we have. Man, that makes my heart sing that we have that kind of God. I hope it makes yours as well. And then fourth in verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. This is not just a restatement of the previous one. Listen what else is developed in this next request. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you've given to your people as an inheritance. If there's a famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, all these crazy consequences of our stupid sin... If their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you to walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. What we considered this week is that God uses famine. He uses blight, mildew, locusts, pestilence, caterpillar, enemies, plague, sickness. He uses all sorts of things to guide us into his way. Not in every case, these are consequences for sin, but often they're consequences for sin. And when they are, Lord, use those consequences. Use those consequences to guide us into your way. And then the fifth request was in verse 32. Likewise, when a foreigner who's not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I built is called by your name. This Sunday, just a few Sundays ago now at this point, we ask, Lord, as you welcome the foreigner, may we welcome the foreigner. We realize the Greek word for hospitality is the word phyloxenia. It means love for the stranger that God would use our hospitality to make of strangers, friends, and not only friends, but family. That's what he's done for us. When we do that, all we're doing is reflecting what he's done for us in making former enemies, in fact, strangers, making them friends first, and then family. The sixth request, Scott preached, and then the seventh one as well. In verse 34 is the sixth. If your people go out to battle against their enemies, by, by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen in the house that I built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. One of the cool teachings of this week was realizing that your people go out to battle. It doesn't say if one of you goes out to battle, if a renegade or a maverick or some lone wolf goes out to battle it says if your people go out to battle and if they pray toward this house then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause one of the things i enjoyed about mike's testimony this morning it was all about they and what god does in community there were a few lessons from this from this week and one was that we're in a battle The only thing worse than being in combat is to be in combat and not know it. Eating bonbons and drinking cocoa. One of the points of this this message was a martial call that we are in battle. And then secondly, we're not in battle alone. We're in battle together and our battle must be bathed in prayer. Prayer, that's the fuel of the warrior. And then the seventh request from last week is in verse 36. If they sin against you for there's no one who does not sin and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to a land far or near yet if they turn their heart in their land in the land to which you have been carried captive to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity saying we've sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their mind And with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive, and they pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. This last week was a reference sermon for us as a church. I don't know if you know that or realize that. Those of you who are here, You may know that. Those of you who weren't, you need to go listen to it. Those of you who were here, you need to know that will be a reference sermon for years to come for us. Terms I've been using my whole life, like forgiveness and grace and repentance. This last Sunday, in a lot of ways, they came into significant focus. What Paul, or what what Scott, I just called you Paul. You should be proud He's shaking his head back there. I think a lot of you, brother. What Scott so profoundly exposed, what God exposed, I should say, through Scott last week is that we must never be guilty of not offering forgiveness to the repentant. But we should also not be guilty of offering forgiveness to the unrepentant. For we're bypassing God's work. We're short-circuiting the work is what we're doing and we're gonna get a pale, pale, ugly, homely version of restoration. We should never fail to offer forgiveness to the repentant and we should never offer forgiveness to the unrepentant for you bypass in short circuit what God may be doing in that person's life. It's a very, very important sermon in the life of our church. And this morning we end with verses 40 through 42. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O oh Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O oh Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O oh Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. As we were considering whether we needed to do today, Scott and I and others talking about this, praying about this, realized that if we stopped last week, we were gonna stop short of sort of gathering up some of the things that we considered, which we just talked about, and recounting what God showed us. There are a few other things that I think are worth considering briefly this morning. First, and in some ways, they're at a devotional level, but no less important and potent. First of four devotional thoughts, Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon was given wisdom in spades. And what did Solomon do next? He went about building God's house because that's what wise people do. He asks for wisdom. He gets it, and then he starts building was also a priority in his work. The first seven years after he prays this prayer for wisdom, the first seven years of his reign were spent building the temple, and then the next 13 were spent building his own house. Not only is there wisdom in the fact that he's building God's house, but there's also wisdom in the fact that he gives priority to building God's house. You see the beauty in that? How would this play out for the people of God if we considered it wise to build God's house? Then the things that we would pine for in our young people, if we want them to grow up in wisdom and stature, would be that they too are burdened for the work of the church as God is building his house. That we as families, if we wanted to move wisely, that we would be about building God's house. Which we know is the church. Church notoriously gets leftovers. I've been around church long enough to know that. To see guys move that move well in business, that move well at home. You see their yards perfectly manicured and their cars perfectly clean, yet, what they might or might not show up at church for a meeting. And if they show up, heaven forbid they're actually prepared. And I'm thankful that this church has not been characterized by that. But let me tell you something. This church can grow in that. We can all grow in that. Wisdom says we're about the work of building his church. And wisdom says we're about the work of building his church as first priority over building even his own house. How might this play out? Corporate gatherings or corporate messages or corporate celebrations would oftentimes, and I won't say as a rule, but would oftentimes take priority over personal or family matters. You can make anything important, people. You can make anything important. It could be sports. It could be hobbies. It could be shopping. It could be whatever. You can insert anything in there to make it more important than building his house. But that's not what wise people do. I wanna be very careful here that I don't communicate to you that if you don't show up on a Sunday, you don't love God, if you're off doing something on a short season. But I urge you, don't be characterized by that because it's not wise. It's not wise to be characterized by God's house getting your leftovers. Wise men are about building it and wise men are about putting it first. Maybe the best Message to consider this morning is how your life and the lives of your family is characterized. Are you characterized by making a beeline to God's people? Are you characterized by engaging it at all costs? Are you characterized by being blameless and all in? Wise people should, and wise people do. I encourage you not to miss this point. Does building his house become a priority only if there's nothing else going on and all are in the best of health? And I'm very careful about saying that because I know we've been through a crazy season of sickness in this community and in this church. And I don't want to cast any sort of guilt on anybody. Oh, my little wee one's sick and I wasn't at church for a few weeks so he's running me down. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't let it be an excuse not to gauge his people. Can you walk? Can you breathe? Can you talk? Are you not contagious? Then gather, man, gather. We'll wheel you in here. We'll prop you up. We'll help you get back in your car and help you get home. It's that important. We're not counting heads on Sunday morning. You come and take nourishment when you come and gather. It's that important. I don't wanna beat anybody down who's thinking, man, you can't get sick at Cross Point Fellowship. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm asking you to consider how are you characterized? Are you clamoring to gather? Clamoring to build, engage, work in and on his house. Now, the second thing for devotion is to consider also the effort and the work and the excellence that went into this house. It wasn't built with scrap lumber. And it wasn't built with cheap stuff. I'm looking back at some of the details. He made the holy place. He gives all the details of what's in it. Cherubim, uh, wings on these little jokers, blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen, Two pillars, 35 cubits high with a capital of five. I don't even know what a capital is. I think I used to, but I forgot. Five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars. A hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up pillars in front of the temple. One on the south, the other on the north, and on the south, he called Jachin. J, Jachin, I, I guess that's right. And then on the north, Boaz. He's even naming what he's building. And It's elaborate. I mean, he built a sea of cast metal, an altar of bronze, 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. He built 10 basins, golden lampstands, hundreds, 100 basins of gold, 400 pomegranates, table for the bread of the presence, lampstands, lamps of pure gold, flowers, lamps, snuffers, basins, dishes, for instance, firepans, pure gold in the sockets of the temple. I know that's over the top, but I want it to be over the top. This thing was a pale shadow of what this is. If this thing, this temple, that probably would have been one of the wonders of the world, physical wonders of the world, man-made, I should say. If this thing gets such fine array, shouldn't this? Shouldn't his church get your best? Shouldn't it get the gold and the filigree and the linen and the finest that you have to bring? I ask you to examine, man, am I bringing the finest to this? Are my kids seeing the the house of God getting the finest or are my kids seeing the house of God, the people of God getting the leftovers? Man, does this house get your best? (coughs) Third. God is enthroned in and among his people. God is enthroned in and among his people. There's a progression in the story of, the, of redemption, in the story of this people. The progression is that God's throne used to be the ark, the horn, the, the ark of the covenant in the tabernacle. So his throne was a moving throne. Wherever the tabernacle went, that's where God was gonna dwell. And then that that was during the Mosaic covenant. And then during the, the Davidic covenant, the throne becomes static. And it becomes not only the ark in the temple, but it actually becomes the temple itself. And in some ways, it becomes all of Jerusalem. And then, through the work of Christ, as we know from the teaching in Hebrews, we become the throne. He was enthroned on the ark. And then he was enthroned in the temple, and then he's enthroned in Jerusalem, and now he is enthroned in and on the church. That realization has to fuel the first two devotional points. If you leave the first two devotional points by themselves, then y'all just gonna feel guilty. You're like, oh man, kind of beat down, because we'll never really satisfy what we're supposed to satisfy. But if you let this third one fuel those and inform those, then you go, yeah, no, duh. Why wouldn't he get our best? The living God that buckled the belt of Orion, that hung the Pleiades, the living God that spoke oceans full of critters, that spoke the mountains into place, the living God is dwelling in and among and on his people. How could he not get our best? How could he not get our priority? This has to fuel all else. Apart from this truth, it would be easy to dismiss God's house as unimportant and maybe even optional. It not only adds weight to the first two, it is the weight of the first two. I want to take a moment this Sunday to share with you something that's going to happen on April 24th, May, March 24th, March 24th, March 24th, we're going to do something that we do every year, it's called membership renewal. The first year we ever did membership renewal, I don't know, we were a year or two old, And we sat around talking about it and it was, I I think the elders were formed then. It may not have been elders yet. It was at least staff bearers. We had a little group of leaders that were called staff bearers before we actually had elders. And I remember us sitting around talking about this thing, this membership renewal and going, who's gonna do that? Isn't that asking a lot of people? We don't wanna ask a lot of people. We don't ask too much of people because they could go in any direction and find someone who's just gonna fall all over them just for being there. So how could we possibly consider each year that we're gonna call our people to examining their covenant with God's people and with God to be part of God's people in a meaningful way? And I don't know how many times we've done membership covenant, but every time, membership renewal, but every time we do it, all it does is reinforce that it is a good thing. It reminds us that being part of each other's lives in a meaningful way And reminding ourselves of that each year is only a good thing. How could that not be gold? And if someone flees because they've been asked to be reminded of a covenant they've made to God and each other, then maybe they shouldn't be here anyway. If somebody doesn't want to be accountable one to another and to their God and really part of each other's lives in a meaningful way, then maybe they shouldn't be here. That's hard for me to say because I want everybody to be here. But you know what? God hadn't called us to be the biggest church in this community. That's his business. The size of a church is his business. What he's called us to is to be true and blameless and all in. I was reading this morning, this morning, just my daily daily, Bible reading, Luke chapter eight. Don't turn there, listen. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's almost like in 2,000 years after the cross that things have become so civilized that we've, realized, we've forgotten about blood and crosses and sacrifice. We've all almost become so civilized that we've missed out on the primitive work of a cross and blood and sacrifice. So it's easier for us to sort of say sanitary and clean. Ooh, I don't want to get bloody. And he says here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake would save it. That is a graphic thought. Take up your cross and follow me. I'm reading that this morning and I'm thinking, well, turns out We're not crazy. Turns out, we're not crazy. It should be meaningful commitments to be part of each other's lives. And if we do that each year and remind each other of that, turns out, that's a good thing. I encourage you, two different groups of people, those who are members of Crosspoint, to take another look at our membership covenant. We ask you to do this every year. There are copies right outside that door and there's copies online. That's what it looks like, membership covenant. And it's five things that we believe the church ought to be. It's five things that we long to be as a people. None of them we have perfectly, by the way, <laughs> but it's five things that we pine to be. So if you're a member of Crosspoint Fellowship, man, I encourage you to grab this thing, to read it together as a family and to pray about it. And then to recommit to God's people in covenant on March 24th, if the Lord leads you. And by the way, I can't imagine the Lord leading you to a lower, smaller, weaker commitment in anything. I, I mean, I've had people say at times over the years, I think God's kind of leading us to, to just kind of attend somewhere, really. Yeah, God wouldn't want you to be part of any, anybody else's life in a meaningful way. He just wants you to just show up. I mean, I'm being really honest with y'all this morning. So don't anybody say that to me this year because I might get physical. <laughs> Paul Astorbin is always right under the surface, ready to come out at a moment's notice. The second group of people is if you're visiting Crosspoint and you've been visiting for some time. If, if you haven't been visiting for some time, that's the first encouragement, visit for some time. But if you've been visiting long enough you're like, man, this is it, like Mike said, the Lord's keeping us awake over this. we're supposed to be part of this people. Then grab this covenant and talk about it and pray through it, and then we'll meet with you and talk with you about it. And we'll pray together and we'll search the Lord's will, and we'll present you to this body if the Lord wills it. That makes sense? And then this thing that we do on the 24th, it has tremendous meaning. If it's something that we're doing as an act of worship, it has tremendous meaning. For those people that are already part of this body, Lord, we are honoring you by recommitting our membership and our commitment to one to another and to you. And then for those who aren't, maybe for the first time, I'm committing to be part of a church in a meaningful way and not to just attend somewhere. I wanna know and be known. I wanna walk with the people in a way that will make much of you, okay? Now, the fourth thing, and this is where we're gonna enter into prayer. The fourth devotional thought. The offerings over the course of the redemptive story become less and less bloody. The sacrifices over the course of the redemptive story become less and less bloody. If you read the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, Numbers, And you look at what's going on in the tabernacle. I cannot imagine the amount of cleanup that must have taken place every single day. Blood must have been everywhere. It's a very bloody environment. And then moving on into the temple. The blood sacrifices continue, but then other things start popping up as sacrifices as well not just blood. A prime example right here, and I I told you, the exact dimensions of Solomon's prayer platform were the exact dimensions of the altar. He places it right next to the altar and he kneels in prayer, arms lifted in prayer. And in so many ways, his prayer becomes just as much sacrifice as the 20,000 or however many oxen that were about to be sacrificed on the altar. And then if you watch the redemptive story from that point on, you see Hezekiah where they rediscover or Hezekiah's reign where they rediscover the temple and its worship and then there's sacrifice that takes place and then there's prayer and praise. Prayer and praise are what end up replacing and now have replaced completely these bloody sacrifices. The final bloody sacrifice was Christ's sacrifice, and that ended it. We don't need any more bloodshed because that blood is sufficient. And now the offerings of sacrifice are prayer and praise. A few passages to share with you. You don't need to turn here. You can just listen to these. Second Chronicles, here's the passage I mentioned with Hezekiah. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. This is when the temple worship was sort of rediscovered. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also, and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. You start to see music. Things get louder and more musical in the temple. Music has always been a part of it, but you see it breaking in as blood is getting less and less. Things are getting less and less bloody. And you see prayer breaking in as things are getting less and less bloody. Psalm chapter 22, verse three says, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. It's not the altar anymore. It's not the temple. It's not Jerusalem anymore. Now, it is exclusively the church and the praises of his people. And then in Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 15, through him, this being Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter five, and I'm gonna read a few verses here because it's one of the most beautiful passages of scripture in our Bible. This is the throne room vision of the lamb. Listen how prominent prayer is in this passage. Listen to how important it is in this setting. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then there were crickets. Crickets. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Silence in heaven. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And then John says, you know what? I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, hey, John, I got good news for you, buddy. Hang in there, John. Listen to this. Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and look, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They're praying and look what happens next. And they sang a new song. Prayer and praise. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its his seals. I heard crickets and there was nobody else around that could do it, but worthy are you to, to take the scroll and open its his seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Man, prayer and praise, that's our sacrifice now. We're going to spend the next few minutes praying a prayer that has been conditioned by the truths of the gospel. We're going to pray a prayer that's been informed from our journey in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We're going to pray a prayer that was conditioned by what happened at the cross a thousand years after it was prayed... That's informed by what happened seven weeks later when God moved into the church at Pentecost. And it's also informed by the fact that 40 years later, the temple was destroyed. Just enjoy that. That the temple was destroyed so we, there would be no confusion. There's no temple, no tabernacle, just his church. We're gonna pray A prayer that in some ways has been crucified and it's going to be personal and it's going to be specific let's pray oh lord god of israel and god of the new israel the church thank you for keeping your covenant with david that we shall not lack a man to sit on the throne We enjoy today that your promise is and has forever been eternally fulfilled in King Jesus. We see him high and lifted up, seated at your right hand. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the church that you've built and are building. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened day and night toward the church. For us, little old, insignificant Crosspoint Fellowship, the people who bear your name, that you may listen to the prayers that your servants offer in Jesus' name and listen to the pleas of your people, the new Israel, when we pray in Jesus' name. Hear our prayers for healing for Tara Hicks and for her dad's salvation through this. hear our prayer for healing for Don Rodden's mom, June Riggins. For healing for Lori McCullough's mom, Marsha Potts. For believing faith in Wendy Atkinson's mom and dad. For believing faith in Jeremy Webb and David Bench and in Jerry Morris' mom. Lord, we pray for faithful shepherds of families who are about the work of being equipped each week. We pray for husbands to wash their wives with the word and for wives to respect and enjoy plain old ordinary men called husbands. Lord, we pray for youth. We pray for youth to go the distance in faith and not bail on God like their counterparts do. We pray for children to come to faith early in Christ and to enjoy him from their earliest moments. Lord, we are so thankful for the many children in this body. Thank you for bringing all of them through a really tough season of sickness. Even most recently, little Riley Carroll, who's now home and out of the hospital. We pray too for little Hudson Bean and a tiny little heart and a tiny little valve that you'll make 90%, 100%. Lord, you take better care of our children than we can. Lord, I pray too for the fatherless that the courthouse would be busy as we foster and adopt and make little bitty strangers little bitty family members. Lord, we pray for elders who can and will pray and preach and climb the mountain and unpack your word week after week. We pray that we're not bogged down in business or the cares of the world. We pray for our deacons to be the hands of Christ attended to the needs of the body. We pray for small group shepherds to be true shepherds involved in the lives of families in meaningful ways. Lord, we thank you for provision of food, clothing, housing, jobs. I'm thankful that Brent Kimbler has a new and good job. I'm thankful that Chad Spear has a new and good job. Father, listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Hear us like a father hears from his child. Please continue to be attentive. Please continue to be available and approachable. And in so doing, inspire us and move us to be the same with our children and with others as a reflection of your character. And Lord, when we come together weekly, may the message you give us never be hypoallergenic. May we speak boldly as men of sincerity speaking in Christ. And may we as a people always experience conviction or encouragement, never indifference. May we experience guilt or reward. May we not leave just having shown up. And Lord, may our weekly fidelity oath in the Lord's Supper be true. And Lord, not if we sin, but when we sin and are defeated because we've been stupid Bring us to a place of true repentance. And Lord, when we're repentant, forgive us and restore whatever we may have lost through that sin. We boldly make this request knowing that you're the kind of God that forgives 70 times 7 times 7 times 7. I make this prayer today, maybe even at great cost, and praying this publicly, I pray for my brother, Steve Roberts. I pray for repentance, and I beg for the opportunity to pour a Niagara forgiveness on this brother and restore him and his family to this body. I grieve that they are in self-appointed exile right now, and I pray that you will bring him to a place of brokenness, repentance, and eventually restoration in your time and for your glory. Lord God of the new Israel, please use the consequences for our sin to guide us back into your way. Please give us discernment and wisdom in knowing when to allow consequences in each other's lives and in the lives of those we minister to. Please don't let consequences go to waste, but open our eyes to your design and your ministry of loving discipline to us through the consequences of our sin. And Lord, when we have the opportunity to meet a stranger, whether a new face on a Sunday morning or a benevolence case, someone that has a need, or a new acquaintance in the workplace or neighborhood or weight room, or someone in the far corners of the field, please remind us of our former relationship to you as a stranger. Help us remember how you made of strangers not only friends, but family. And when we remember, Lord, use our hospitality and our love for the stranger to draw them to the gospel and into your people. Please slow us down from all the world demands and expects of us to be about this three-mile-an-hour work. We pray for those family in the far, far corners of the fields, for many strangers to be made friends, and for those friends to be made church. We pray, too, for Igo Ministry and for Brad Cardwell, who's sent into this ministry. We pray for the many strangers abroad that they seek, that many will be made friends, and many will be made your people. We pray for the Rafa Clinic. We pray for our church family who are serving in this difficult ministry. We pray with them for many local strangers with child. First, for life for that child, and second, for faith in that mom. We are thankful for the opportunity to participate in these ministries. Lord, help us to see ourselves sent out into battle. Help us have a wartime mentality. We know that the devil has schemes and that the strength that we need to battle against unbelief and false doctrine can only come from you. Help us to put on the full armor as we battle, preparing accordingly for the risks ahead. Help us to stand firm as a people, holding one another accountable, asking hard questions, rejoicing, weeping, and making sure that we don't stop fighting. And as we fight, let us never cease praying. Let us be strong and bold as we sound our battle cry. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. May the enemy be haunted by those words. May they ultimately be converted by those words. Help us to wield the sword of the word with gentleness and respect. And Lord, thank you for the possibility of forgiveness when we sin. Thank you. Help us to remain repentant. Guard us from the fault of withholding forgiveness when it should be granted and from the fault of granting forgiveness when it should be withheld. Keep us in step with the Spirit and help us to honor one another through rebuke and accountability. Help us to be sincere and thorough in our repentance, yet never think that our sincerity earns your forgiveness. Lord, we're thankful that all Solomon prayed for has been answered and answered in spades through Christ's finished and perfect work. We enjoy now what angels long to look into. We enjoy now what prophets spoke of and most of them died for. We enjoy now fully a final sacrifice, a risen Lord who's seated and in session, placing all things under his feet. We pray these things in his mighty name.
2: Amen. 1 Corinthians 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a remembering and a reminder. Hunger is a great reminder that he gives us. How fitting that we we have a meal as a gift because hunger is present. When your belly is growling, you're reminded, I'm reminded, that we are dependent upon something else to live. We have to eat or we'll die. And so this meal is a reminder that we're dependent. And we're dependent upon him and his completed work. To live. And the the prayer that Ben just led us in as a body, there's a hunger going on there too. What's behind the cry that you heard in his prayer and the cry in your heart is a hunger because things aren't the way they should be. People are sick. There are people that haven't heard. There are strangers that are not family. There are struggles. And so, there's a spiritual hunger going on here too, that this meal reminds us of two things. The thing that covers that hunger is that he's completed the work at the cross, and we're reminded of that. And the last part of this, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim an atonement and a payment and a complete, sufficient, bloody sacrifice. Done. You proclaim that until he comes. His kingdom is coming. And that covers us. He's completed the work. And he's going to make everything right. And it's going to be perfect and beautiful and complete. And it's coming. And so that's where we rest. As we groan, as our bellies growl. Maybe I'm saying that too close to noon today. As our bellies growl for food, our spirit growls. Hungers for things to be right. And we're reminded in this meal that He's made us right in Him and He's coming again. He's coming again and His kingdom will come. And this is how we rest and this is where we sit with these prayers as we rest in this meal. Until He comes again, let the hungry eat. And let the thirsty drink. Father, thank you for this reminder that Jesus' work is done and that you're coming back and you're making things right and you can be trusted and that your church and your house is a refuge. As we move into the time of giving, I pray you get our finest. In Jesus' name, amen.